With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Diane Kennedy, Rebecca Banks, and Rebecca Banks. We are the um, new hosts of the Bright Not Broken radio show, and we are here tonight to kick off our show with some really exciting guests. We have with us this evening Dr. James Webb and Dr. Edward Amen. They are both professionals in the world of giftedness and twice exceptional children. We are going to talk a little bit tonight about those uh, issues and help you in the identification, the resources, and the understanding of what it's like to have a child who may uh, have signs of giftedness as well as disabilities such as ADHD, autism, Asperger's syndrome, and other related disorders. I'd like to uh, introduce Dr. Webb by saying um, he has been recognized as one of the 25 most influential psychologists nationally on gifted education. In 1981, Dr. Webb established SANG, that is the organization supporting the emotional needs of gifted children. It's a national nonprofit organization that provides information, training, conferences, and workshops. And it's a wonderful organization. And Dr. Amond is a clinical psychologist at Amond Psychological Services in Lexington, Kentucky, where he focuses on the social, emotional, and educational needs of the gifted and talented youth and their families. And Dr. Amond has served on the board of directors of SANG for five years. Um, welcome, gentlemen. We're so happy to have you here. If um, if I may, have you uh, welcome yourselves to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Very excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. We are so glad to have you. We're going to open up our show this evening. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions, and then Rebecca is going to um, to ask some questions. Rebecca also, for our listeners who aren't aware, is also an educator in the public school system, and Rebecca and I are the authors of the book that follows um, the Bright Not Broken radio show, and that is the title of our book, Bright Not Broken, Gifted Kids, ADHD, and Autism, Why Twice Exceptional Children Are Stuck and How to Help Them. And so this area we share in common with Drs. Webb and Amond. And one of our first questions for you, um, gentlemen, is what are, if you could tell our listeners, what are some of the characteristics that parents should look for that may indicate that their child is gifted? What, what are some of these common signs? Well, first I would say to the audience, to the listeners out there, that they need to understand that it's a myth that every parent has a gifted child. Frankly, so many parents underestimate their child's ability because they don't like the term gifted. They think gifted is the same as genius, and it's it's not. Gifted, we're talking about children who intellectually in one or more areas is in the upper 3 to 5% of the population, and some people say even more than that. But in terms of what to look for, 
uh, often you can identify a child who's unusually bright and talented, even as a preschooler, with their curiosity. They uh, are taking things apart or putting things together or asking questions. There's a lot of intensity in their curiosity. As a matter of fact, the intensity is in many things that they, they do. Often they teach themselves how to read and write before entering school simply by asking questions and by figuring out a few things. Uh, Dr. Amon, would you like to add on to that? Yes, I think the, the, the thing that jumps out to many parents initially is the language development. Uh, the words that these kids use at young ages uh, astound not only their parents, but uh, sometimes their peers and, and uh, uh, pediatricians uh, are often the ones that, that notice, wow, this, this child speaks very, very well for, for a child of such a young age. Um, so the language development, the use of large vocabulary, often teaching themselves to read early, those kinds of things are, are some that we see most frequently here jumping out of parents. Parents also will report that these children like puzzles. Uh, if you give them um, uh, picture puzzles, they, they love the challenge of putting it together. Well, thank you all. I have a question. This is Rebecca, and uh, you mentioned intensity. Dr. Webb, um, what types of intensity would parents see? Um, well, you, you may see that intensity in a variety of areas. You may see it in, well, actually, there's a theory called Dabrowski overexcitabilities theory, mm -hmm. and that has helped so many parents and professionals understand the intensity and sensitivity of these children. You may have an intensity that's intellectual, where these are kids who just consume books. They cannot seem to read enough books. They ask questions. They love puzzles and challenges. Or you may see an imaginational intensity or overexcitability. The kids spend so much time daydreaming and uh, with making up these very detailed imaginative scenarios. Then you have an emotional intensity. These, this is a sensitivity. These are the, the youngsters who, uh, they, they want to pick up the homeless man. They can't watch the evening news without crying. They, they are worried because you're killing bugs on the windshield when you're driving your car. Then you have maybe a psychomotor uh, intensity. These are children who are always on the move. It feels so good to be moving and their their toes are jiggling, their fingers are moving, they're twiddling with their hair. And then you have a sensual intensity, and this, that sounds kind of strange to some people, but these are children where parents will tell you that they have to cut the tags out of the back of their shirt. They can't wear nubby socks. They are so sensitive to food textures or odors or sounds. They, large crowds, the noise of crowds just exhaust them. So the brighter the child, the more likely the child is, it seems, to have uh, one or two or maybe all five of these intensities that then are such a key part of their life and which can be, in the long run, one of their greatest strengths. But on the other hand, it can cause some difficulties for these children with mm -hmm. their peers, with teachers, with parents. 
Right. And keep in mind that these intensities are not necessarily, uh, they are they are definitely more common amongst gifted individuals uh, than they would be expected in the general population, but they're not solely the, the hallmark of gifted individuals. Some yes. of these overexcitabilities yes. and intensities are, are seen in other populations as well, particularly in some of, uh, you know, some of the physical sensitivities like the sensual overexcitabilities, the physical uh, discomforts um, and the sensory issues are, are uh, hallmarks of, uh, other uh, difficulties as well, such as, you know, kids on the autism may, spectrum have some of those sensitivities as well. Exactly. Or sensory integration right. disorder. And you, you may see the overlaps, at, which is, is <laughs> one of the, the areas that I hope we'll be able to get in today is what we call the twice exceptional gifted child, mm-hmm. uh, twice exceptional child, a child who's both gifted but also is Asperger's or autistic or sensory desperation, uh, disorder or um, ADHD or the like. Well, and along with these intensities, um, what kind of emotional characteristics do parents tend to see in children? Because I know that as young children, um, the sensual aspects can cause quite a few meltdowns where parents may not realize that perhaps the child's becoming overstimulated by the environment because they can't process all of the sensory um, input, but what what are some of the emotional characteristics of, of children that you would consider um, common to the gifted or the twice exceptional population? Dr. Amon, do you want to take that one? Sure. The, the emotionality that we see in these kids is, is so pronounced. Dr. Webb mentioned earlier about the uh, kids who can't watch the news. Uh, on a more day-to-day basis, you may see the, the um, intense reactions to what may not be uh, large stimuli, you know, the child that gets the paper cut uh, screams as if you, you might have chopped off a finger. Uh, that intensity, that emotional overreactivity, uh, we do see quite frequently uh, among our gifted children. Um, there, you know, there is that, that uh, just that, that intense reaction to a, a very mild uh, stimuli. Um, so that's one of the things we see with those overexcitabilities, that emotionality, very much so. What about stubbornness? Um, <laughs> is that well, a characteristic cho- as well? Oh, yes. These children do tend to be strong-willed, uh, unusually so, which then can make it difficult sometimes to differentiate between a child who's simply very, very bright and focused and a child who is, let's say, um, uh, Asperger's disordered, both of them will, you will have great difficulty shifting them from one task to the other. They tend to be very stubbornly focused on one area. There are some differences between the two, though. And with the uh, the gifted child, you you often will see the difficulties only in some situations, but not in others. A child with Asperger's disorders, you're much more likely to see it in almost all situations, that rigidity and stubbornness. Yeah. Uh, and then you have gifted children who are, uh, they're not rigid, but they sure are strong-willed. Did you, <laughs> well, did you and that strong-willed. Sure, that strong-willed behavior is uh, is one of the things that many parents will comment on, and, and these uh, bright kids are so very good at engaging their pow- parents in these non-productive power struggles over sometimes very minor issues, uh, and it's very, very difficult uh, sometimes for parents who want to get that last word to actually get that last word. <laughs> You'll do it because I said so. Uh, 
or the child, the parents will say, I feel like I have an eight-year-old Philadelphia lawyer living in my house. They're always challenging and questioning and such strong-willed and never give up on anything. Right. And it's not only the parents, it's the teachers as well. I'm here to testify. Oh, yes. um, <laughs> one thing I've noticed in the classroom and also with with my children is um, the challenge of developing peer relationships. Um, when we have children who are so intensely curious or um, they're so gifted in one area that they don't, a lot of times it seems like they're almost blind to what their peer group may be, their true peer oh, yes. group, oh, yes, and very much blind so. to the needs of the other people. Um, yes. could, you, could you comment on that? They're, they're so focused on their interest. You know, which in the long run is going to be a wonderful strength if if they're going to really achieve as an adult. But golly, it sure can be a problem for, for example, peer relations, where the other kids simply don't understand why this kid who's also in their grade, who's a second grader, let's say, is so concerned with with math problems or with uh, what are the rules for this or that, and who often is reading and asking questions at a level way beyond what the age peers can understand. I often raise a question when I talk to parents and educators and say, well, who is it? think about who is a peer for a gifted child, because often you have to answer it with a question and say, well, a peer in what? Do you mean appear in terms of music or math, or do you mean appear in terms of t-ball and soccer? Often these kids need several different peer groups, and often they also gravitate toward older playmates and toward adults because that's where they're more likely to find people that can share their intellectual interest and who, frankly, are more likely to understand their intensity. And it, it's some yeah. of those some of those specific characteristics of gifted kids that we mentioned earlier that that make those peer relationships somewhat difficult. One we didn't mention uh, that certainly can also be a, a problem is their sense of humor. These these bright kids yes. tend to have unusual sense of humor. And, and as an educator, uh, Rebecca, I'm sure you've noticed that there are times that they make a joke, but only you get it. Uh, the other kids, it goes right over their head. Uh, and it can disrupt the classroom sometimes, too, if the other kids do get it. <laughs> right, right. Yes, and, and, <laughs> very much so. Go ahead. Right, and so it, that can make those peer relationships a, a challenge as well. But it, I, I do want to mention that it, you know, there, there, it, it, it is a myth that all gifted kids have problems socially. You know, there are oh, some yes. of our gifted kids, um, you know, and I've had parents come in and say, well, he can't be gifted. He gets along with everybody. You know, mm -hmm. because they believe that myth mm -hmm. that all, all bright kids, you know, have some of these social difficulties. Not all of them do, but uh, but many of them, uh, for many of them, their giftedness does present some challenges in those social situations. You know, primarily, that whether or not they have problems depends on the extent to which their parents and educators understand them and can get them into an appropriate educational placement and avoid the, the power struggles because these same characteristics that we were mentioning earlier that can cause problems Remember, they also are these kids' greatest strengths. They're wonderful characteristics, the curiosity, the intensity, the sensitivity. It, it, they're wonderful. Yeah, so that, that's it's a matter of how point. they're handled. Yeah, that's an important point because their needs, the needs that these gifted kids have, do grow right out of their strengths. They come right out of their strengths. Uh, it is the strengths that create those needs that they have. So uh, we may not recognize them as needs. 
because they're coming from positive characteristics like large vocabulary, learning to, re- learning to read earlier, um, having an unusual sense of humor, and the like. Right. I would, right. Um, this is such a wonderful conversation. As I'm listening to you all in your responses, I'm, I'm I'm reminded of my own reasons for beginning this journey as an advocate and working uh, towards these issues with my own children. You are um, helping me remember in such vivid terms um, so many of the things that, that were going on with my children. Specifically, I have a son who's twice exceptional, who was um, in a very, very high IQ range, but from an early age had many of these issues we're talking about, mm-hmm. which leads me um, to our next question. And before I get into it, I'm, I am uh, very sorry I forgot to mention something so important when I introduced you all. That's what led me to find you in the first place, and that is your wonderful book that is called Misdiagnosis and Dual Diagnoses, of gifted children and adults, ADHD, bipolar, OCD, Asperger, depression, and other related disorders. Um, this book, I think, is, is I look at it as the hallmark of bridging these two worlds together. And um, it's it's wonderful. I know it was a wonderful resource for us, led us to um, to a lot of the research that we did, um, and we we certainly agree with so many of the of the areas that you lay out in this book that cover this confusion of being misdiagnosed. And that's one of the questions that we have is. Um, if you can tell us how these characteristics that we've been talking about today put children at risk for being misdiagnosed with other conditions or disabilities, such as Asperger's, ADHD, et cetera. Oh, sure, yes. The, the research indicates that most gifted children, if they're educationally misplaced, from one-fourth to one-half of the regular classroom time is spent waiting for others to catch up. And if you have a very bright, curious, creative, intense, sensitive, gifted child, bright child in a classroom, bored, waiting for others to catch up, that child is likely, his mind is likely to wander. And he may engage in activities that aren't necessarily appreciated by the teacher. And often that kid get, gets referred, for example, for possible ADHD evaluation. Well, the reason that we wrote the book, Misdiagnosis and Dual Diagnoses of Gifted Children and Adults, is because we recognized years ago how extraordinarily few pediatricians, psychologists, family practitioners, and the like receive any training about children that we call gifted, talented, and the like. And as a result, what happens is in the brief time that they have with the child, they look at the behaviors and jump quickly to the diagnosis in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that best fits the behaviors, not knowing that those same behaviors can come from a gifted child who is educationally misplaced or in a family that doesn't understand the uh, the behaviors. And I'll let Dr. Amen add on, too, if he wants to on that. Yeah, well, for these kids, where those behaviors are misunderstood or, or misinterpreted, uh, what we find is that uh, that for many of them, giftedness can be used to explain why some of these behaviors are occurring. Uh, and as Jim, as Dr. Webb was saying, these uh, these 
characteristics are simply uh, not something that most practitioners are aware of, and so they don't have that framework to use to explain, aha, this is why these behaviors are occurring. And if we address them as uh, a result of or through the gifted aspects, uh, we're much better able to address uh, some of those problems. If we, you know, if we see an active kid who's having uh, difficulty sitting still in the classroom, we jump directly to ADHD and attempt to intervene on the level of ADHD, we may or may not see positive results. But if we see that as a gifted kid who's misplaced educationally, not engaged in the curriculum, and therefore active and fidgeting, uh, if we address the curriculum, we see you know a similar, uh, a, 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 a more positive change in that behavior once they become engaged. And so that's, that's the issue with the, you know, with, with not understanding those characteristics is we don't get to the proper interventions. Yeah, another common um, misdiagnosis that we see is obsessive-compulsive disorder. We, we know that many gifted children tend toward perfectionism, and they do that because they can see how things might be, but they can also equally keenly see how things are falling short of how they might be or how they're falling short of how they might be. And on the one hand, well, first of all, perfectionism is not the same as obsessive-compulsive disorder. And on the one hand, I had a friend who uh, said perfectionism is like cholesterol. There are two kinds. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Well, there's good perfectionism and bad perfectionism. We want high standards. We want ideals. We want people to strive toward perfection. But some gifted children will get paralyzed by perfectionism. And, of course, that's not good. But that doesn't mean that you should jump immediately to a diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder, but yet all too often that happens. I'd like to. That's wonderful, wonderful explanation. And I know this is um, probably a topic I'm going to ask this question that we could do an entire other show on. As a matter of fact, we've done quite a few um, interviews with Marianne Russo on the Coffee Clatch about the new change coming up in the DSM-5. I know a lot of parents are frightened um, specifically. What we've talked about and what I'd like to ask you about is the changes um, as they pertain to the autism spectrum disorder a category where they're trying to really do some major shifts there, especially as it relates to the children who may be high-functioning uh, in that category. Can you speak just briefly about your feelings about that and what it might do to, um, to this misdiagnosis issue? Well, I, I'm going to, I think, defer to Dr. Amon because, frankly, I think he is more knowledgeable about that than I. I, I would comment if you don't want to, Dr. Amon, but do you, do you mind? No, I will. Uh, um, you know, it's really, uh, there are so many possibilities as to what could happen uh, moving forward. But in terms of the misdiagnosis, one of the things I, I, I see these days is we have a lot of folks uh, a lot of practitioners who are uncomfortable uh, with the criteria the way it is, and so we get a lot of kids coming that aren't labeled with uh, autism spectrum, aren't, aren't labeled with autistic disorder or Asperger's. A lot of them come in being labeled um, uh, PDDNOS, which is pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, meaning they don't really fit any one particular category, um, and so we kind of 
put them in that uh, we basically say they're on the spectrum and 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 it seems like that's uh, uh part of the thinking with the the new DSM-5 is we know we, we don't know exactly where they are so we're going to call them uh somewhere on the spectrum and and I and and I think that um you know historically we know from research that that if you if you give a uh, case study to several psychologists we're we're pretty good at hitting the right category we may differ on the specific diagnosis within that category. Uh, you know, we, one may call it uh, bipolar disorder one, one may call it bipolar disorder two, one may call it ADHD inattentive type, one may call it ADHD uh, uh, hyperactive impulsive type. Uh, but we're usually good, at, pretty good at hitting the right category. But sometimes uh, within that category, we can differ, and, and I see this as a as a way to uh, uh, to kind of eliminate some of that uh, confusion. But on the other hand. Um, if the if the definition narrows too much, we may we may see uh, a different issue of kids getting uh, missed in their diagnosis. They genuinely have problems. Would benefit from some of the products and services available for that particular category of child, uh, but not getting that uh, not getting that diagnosis. So those are some of the issues that that, that might crop up uh, with the autism spectrum disorder change. Um, but really, it's you know it, 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 there are a lot of potential uh, consequences that we, we may not even see right now. Another consequence that is being talked about is that the DSM, well, the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual, since it first came out in the 1950s, has expanded the number of diagnoses with every revision markedly, mm -hmm. such that now mm -hmm. a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, we are becoming progressively less tolerant of idiosyncrasies and quirks. And many of these idiosyncrasies and quirks are now being called diagnostic disorders. And wait a minute, this is just not right. So I'm not sure. I, I know that many gifted kids, for example, are quirky. They just are different and idiosyncratic, and of course, the more creative they are, uh, the more likely they are to be non-traditional, just by definition. But that doesn't make it a disorder. So I have the concern, and I'm waiting to see how they finally come down with the final DSM-5, which will be out about a year from now, I gather. I'm waiting to see how they're going to come down on these areas that most often I consider quirks and uh, rather than disorders. And I know Dr. Amen and I have had conversations before, and we, we talk about it in the book, Misdiagnosis and Dual Diagnoses of Gifted Kids, how y you must look to see if there is an impairment. Yes. Uh, or is, if it's not impairing, then it's simply a quirk. Impairing in the sense of is it interfering with your ability to relate to others? Is it impairing, interfering with your ability to work or do schoolwork? Uh, otherwise, it's just a quirk, and there you go. Right, I, and I think that, that's a that's a real important point. That's an that's an excellent point, and um, we really appreciate your um, your weighing in on that topic. I know that can be. It, it seems that it's like you said, uh, Dr. Amon. It's a heated a heated opinion on both sides as we move closer to the realization of this document. That um, that's a necessary tool for um, professionals in the field to use. We have to have some sort of benchmark. But at the same time, as you mentioned, um, a well-trained and educated uh, professional 
can um, understand that you're really looking for impairments rather than just trying to box these kids or label them. You're looking for the understanding of what's really going on with them underneath. And yes. we stress as well that impairments but they need, are... But they need ahead. to also understand information about characteristics of gifted and talented children and adults. For example, uh, we know from the studies of eminent adults when we look at their behavior and we look at their childhoods, we find that almost all of them are characterized by large amounts of alone time. They don't get along with, with other people. They don't spend their time or, from their point of view, waste their time interacting with others. But, gosh, is that an impairment? depends on how you slice it. Uh, some people would say, yes, that's an impairment. Others would say, no, it's simply a necessary precondition to developing the abilities that are later going to allow you to be eminent. So the, the right. professional is well-trained, and regrettably, so few health care and mental health care professionals are yet trained about characteristics of gifted and talented children and adults. May I, May I also and may I interject and say that educators are not always well trained in characteristics of giftedness and understanding the characteristics of those children in the classroom. That's um, true. When you consider what special education training the general teacher gets, she or he may receive one to two semesters at the most, and within that, we're we're instructed in all types of disorders and giftedness comes under that umbrella, but at no point do we get a profile of a gifted child with all of the quirks and all of the sensitivities and all of the abilities and how that may look in a classroom. Um, So I think you're correct in saying that we have um, uh, just, we are impoverished in terms of professional training in many areas when it comes to identifying these children. Which means it falls back on the parents the importance of parents to educate themselves about these characteristics so that they can in turn help the professionals to be reminded that they need to consider this. Excellent point, Rebecca, excellent point. And that that leads me to my next question, which really is, um, I think, one of the pivotal areas where the misdiagnosis is, is most misunderstood, and that is when we use the term twice exceptional, because as we've pointed out, and I know as Drs. Amon and Webb have also pointed out here, that these um, these characteristics of giftedness can sometimes mask the disability. So, and we talk about um, a disability in terms of being obvious, but sometimes when you're overcompensating, your disability is missed, and this happens at home, in the psychologist's office, and, and at school. We don't understand the hidden suffering that's going on. So if, if you could, if you could tell our listeners today, this term may be new for them, twice exceptional. What exactly does it mean? And, um, and please uh, elaborate on that for us with that term. Sure. We, we talk a lot about um, the, the misdiagnosis uh, and that being, you know, gifted children who have these characteristics that are best explained by giftedness but don't necessarily have a disorder. It is important to keep in mind that gifted kids aren't necessarily immune to um, any type of disorder. Gifted kids 
can and do have uh, just about uh, every disorder we, we've identified. So a twice exceptional youngster is a gifted child who also has a diagnosis of a disorder, an accurate diagnosis. So a gifted child who also has ADHD or a gifted child who also has uh, been identified as having Asperger's disorder. Um, a gifted child with a learning disability. And those are, are, are the most common, I think, uh, as when we think about uh, gifted children with learning disabilities are the ones we most commonly think of uh, as twice exceptional. But it does expand to all those other uh, categories I mentioned, as well as, as any of the others. It's a gifted child who also has a, a diagnosable condition. That's what we mean by twice exceptional. And it's often abbreviated 2E to make our life a little bit easier. Um, but uh, the twice exceptional are really, uh, as you mentioned, a special group of kids. And the, that the 2E has some real uh, helpfulness to it because it reminds educators and other professionals that both areas need focused attention. And yet still so often we see schools where it seems as though there's an unwritten rule of one label per customer. You know, you can be <laughs> the gifted or you can be... Uh, um, Asperger's, or you can be gifted or ADHD, but you have to choose one, and that's not correct. You need to pay attention to both disorders. Now, and on that also, it helps highlight a particular problem that Dr. Amen mentioned, the, the gifted child who also has a, a learning disability, and that is unusually common, and is one that where the two conditions can mask each other. You can have a very bright child in a class who has a learning disability and sitting in class missing about half of what the teacher is saying, but is bright enough to figure out about half of what's going on or maybe more. And so the, the kid does C work or maybe B work even, uh, and it's not until substantially later in the child's educational career that all of a sudden the tasks are specific enough where now people say, oh, my gosh, that child has a learning disability. Who knew? So the, the giftedness can mask the learning disability, and the learning disability can likewise mask the high ability in an area. And I wanted to make sure to mention that. And interestingly enough, that's how my pathway uh, started was with my son, Graham, who was in a gifted program, identified as gifted, but in seventh grade, things started crumbling for him. And when you said that education, you get one label or the other, unfortunately, the school system that he was in at the time, he was exited out of the gifted program and then identified as learning disabled. and the attentions to the gift were, were gone, if you will, yes. as far as education went because they, don't, they didn't know how to handle both of them. And so um, with regard to identification, is there an average time where this um, tends to come out? I know that usually about fifth grade we start seeing more abstract thinking, reading, and mathematics skills come into play where trouble begins. I mean, the rote learning skills that ha occur early on in elementary education, our gifted children tend to grasp on and, and get that fairly well, but it's one of the more abstract concepts and having to apply that knowledge, like you said, in specific contexts, we start to see it. So is middle school another time when parents can possibly see the emergence of, of perhaps the disability or so something it depends else? On or? 
it depends on the type of disability in the area that uh, in terms mm -hmm. of say the abstract thinking and, and verbal areas might be a, a factor that emerges for one child, but for the other child it may be uh, mathematics or some other area. Uh, often it tends to be very, very specific areas. But it's what's even complicates it more is in middle school you have so many other factors. You have the incredible peer mm -hmm. pressure to be like all the other kids. You, uh, you have the hormones that are kicking in at that point. So it's, that's a hard one to answer. I'll let Dr. Amon weigh in on that if he uh, cares to. Sure. I would agree there are a lot of things that go on in middle school, and uh, some of them are pretty good, but uh, there's a lot of a lot of unusual things happening during middle school. But, uh, um, yes, I, I agree completely that it does depend on the type of disability. Uh, oftentimes with uh, learning disabilities in basic reading skills, not necessarily comprehension, but the basic word decoding, sometimes those are missed until high school, until the, the reading gets much more complicated um, because of the same reasons uh, that you mentioned mentioned earlier, uh, I think that was Diane, mentioned earlier um, that uh, uh, the, uh, they can be present and, in class and, and learn enough and gather enough and remember enough from the rote learning uh, that they can, uh, they can make it through and, and do just quote-unquote fine. Um, and so uh, we see, you know, the ADHD, the, the gifted child with ADHD, those are, um, are difficulties that do tend to crop up more significantly in middle school. Um, because at the elementary school levels, uh, we've got a lot more movement. We've got a lot more uh, opportunities for kids to move, and so we don't see quite as many of those uh, kids diagnosed at those early ages. Sometimes it's missed. They can be, again, as, as Dr. Webb was mentioning, bright enough to cover it up for, for quite some time. Um, so the, the, I would say yes, in middle school you can, but um, I, I'm, I'm never surprised when I get kids in high school who are, are being identified as twice exceptional. The important thing about this is that um, uh, that you really do need a comprehensive assessment process to identify these gifted kids. Uh, who have learning disabilities or other disabilities. And often if they have a learning disability, most often actually, these children are at risk for self-esteem issues and for underestimating their ability because they tend to focus on what they cannot do, not on what they can do that to them comes so easily. They may be able to do calculus equations in their head at age 10, but the fact that they have difficulty spelling they, they discount what comes easy to them, the calculus, and focus on what they cannot do. And then there's something else, some conditions I want to throw out to you that um, are common amongst gifted, but yet we don't often think about them, and yet they can play a factor here. Allergies and asthma are simply more likely amongst highly gifted children. And then there's another one, another condition that is only affects about 8 to 10% of gifted children, typically the more highly gifted, but it's very dramatic. And that's something that probably could best be described as a temporary glucose insufficiency, where these children uh, will do fine until about 10 o'clock in the morning, and then within the space of about half an hour, they have great difficulty concentrating, staying on task. They're highly distractible. They're just a, a mess emotionally until about a half an hour after lunch, and then they're fine for about two or three hours. And then they uh, are a mess again. 
And what seems to be happening is that these children are simply running out of fuel. We, we know from the research that for all of us, our brains are the largest consumer of glucose in the body. But there's newer research indicating that gifted children, when they're learning new information, their brains consume far more glucose than do brains of, of other kids. And so what then happens is they, they have this apparently a temporary glucose insufficiency that leads them to not be able to function well in the late morning and in the late afternoon, which then often prompts people to misdiagnose them as ADHD or even as the so-called rapid-cycling pediatric bipolar disorder uh, mm-hmm. when that's not the case. So I wanted to mention that because it is so dramatic and seems to be pretty well limited to, uh, or not limited to, but much more frequent in these uh, 8 to 10% of highly gifted kids. That is so interesting. And we're talking about identifying in um, twice exceptional children. And Dr. Amon said that comprehensive testing is about the only way to truly identify them. But nationally, we're moving to something called response to intervention. As they've taken the testing, the requirement for testing away, they being Congress, more and more school systems are using in-class screenings to identify gifted children and um, children with uh, special needs. Um, I just was wondering, are you, um, what do you think about using, it's called RTI, to identify gifted and twice exceptional? Do you have any thoughts or opinions on that? Uh, we, we uh, those of us who do uh, quite a bit of assessment with gifted kids have, have some pretty significant concerns about using RTI only as a method for identifying twice exceptional children. Uh, in fact, the National Association for Gifted Children has a special interest group on assessment that are looking at some of these issues and trying to uh, identify the best ways. Now, it is, it is uh, uh, still um, uh, possible to do uh, comprehensive assessment through the schools, uh, but it is getting much, much less frequent uh, because of the push toward RTI because it is, uh, it, it is more expensive to uh, provide a comprehensive evaluation uh, than it is to use uh, assessments with, within the classroom. Um, if, uh, um, but I, I, I think that we have some, some pretty significant concerns about using that only um, because what you see with some twice exceptional kids is they're not functioning below grade level. Uh, and below grade level <laughs> is, what, is typic- what typically triggers the RTI process. Um, and a gifted child who's intellectually two to three standard deviations above the mean with an IQ of 130 to 145 who has uh, reading skills at the average level, uh, standard score around 95, uh, is learning disabled, has a significant disability, but they are functioning uh, close to grade level, so they are not often, uh, not often identified. As, as, as even to begin the process of RTI. Uh, and so that's one of the challenges that we face. Sometimes the, the uh, floor is so low, uh, they have to be performing so far below expectations that our gifted kids can hold it together for quite some time and function above that level so it doesn't trigger the process. So that's why we say that we really need to, to identify these kids. We really need that comprehensive process to see where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, and how do we use those strengths to help compensate for some of those weaknesses. 
what also adds to this concern, and I share that concern, is that the research indicate that teachers are not always that good at identifying gifted children. As a matter of fact, there's some research that indicates they are missing from one-fourth to one-half of the gifted children when they're called upon to identify them by observation in the classroom. And now the tests are uh, that, that the teachers use are focused primarily on the average or below average uh, functioning ch children and not so much among the above average and, and gifted ranges. So all this ties in with what Dr. Amon was saying. And, and let's keep in mind that, that initially RTI was designed to identify uh, learning disabilities, and that was its initial mm -hmm. purpose, not necessarily twice exceptional being not necessarily the gifted kid with ADHD, not necessarily the gifted kid in general, but not necessarily those gifted kids who also have Asperger's. That's not the was not the original intention of RTI um, to identify those populations. It was it was to be identifying learning disabilities, and it has gotten expanded uh, significantly by um, uh, some states who wishing to uh, to use this as the sole. Uh, identification process, um, and, and that, that becomes, I think, a challenge because we are more likely to miss, particularly these twice exceptional kids. Now, the good part and about also, RTI, uh, go it, the good part about RTI is that it does tend to, it tries to implement more flexibility in what the teachers can do with these children so that it's not every child receiving the same instruction. But golly, that's been good teaching all along. <laughs> and uh, yet I'm not sure that the teachers, as stressed as they are in our, our stressed and strained educational system, I, I have severe doubts as to whether or not they're going to be able to implement successfully the um, variations in the teaching strategies and curriculum and levels that are needed to re really do a successful RTI approach. Correct. That's one of our concerns as well, is, is that we are now uh, asking teachers who are already doing so much to do even more in terms of identification. Uh, and, and with the resources being where they are, they're strained enough to, to educate these kids uh, in general. Uh, they have a, a tough, tough job. And to ask them on top of that to identify populations which, as uh, the host mentioned earlier, uh, they may not even have a whole lot of training on. Um, it, it becomes even more of a challenge. Yeah. Well, like and interestingly enough, oh, go ahead, Diane. I, I was just real quick going to mention there was a wonderful article about a study that was done. So, some good news uh, for everyone is that somebody is looking at this. There was a study out of George Mason University. There's a link to it on the Bright Not Broken Facebook page, and we'll certainly have those resources available after our talk. But I just wanted to mention there is a study being done that talks about how twice exceptional students are overlooked, but specifically many of the danger set that we've been discussing here about RTI and how it can further add um, to that complication. Just wanted to mention that. Great. Also, I think there's an underlying assumption uh, that seems to be growing and in informing our approach to education is that the general curriculum is appropriate for all learners and it's up to the classroom teacher to adapt it to meet the needs of everyone who's in her or his classroom. Um, however, I know as a frontline 
teacher in a high school, it's very, very challenging for me to take a curriculum and adapt it for 30 different students who have various levels of needs, um, accelerating it for gifted children in my content area, um, and also finding other modalities and different approaches um, um, for kids who don't read so well. And what programs exist for twice exceptional kids or for gifted kids that can help parents so that when parents are facing these types of issues that they can, they can request or they can at least um, ask their schools, do they provide these types of programming for the kids? Well, for, for, I'm going to just tell you a little bit then, uh, Dr. Amon, I'd like for you to weigh in on this because you deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis, I know. There is a, a book that I would like folks to know about by Dr. Karen Rogers. It's titled Reforming Gifted Education, How Parents and Teachers Can Match the Program to the Child. And to me, that is so terribly important and speaks to the question you were, you, you called it a challenge to try and meet the needs of 30 kids with a very diverse uh, range of abilities. You've got to have a school that has flexibility and has a variety of options for children who are gifted who may also have something else going on. It may be 2E. You may have a child, for example, who needs whole grade skip combined with single subject acceleration combined with remedial tutoring. Wow, mm -hmm. that, uh, that mm -hmm. defies a, a teacher to be able to do that successfully in the regular classroom uh, without incredible support from the administration and a lot of flexibility. Now, beyond that, I'll, I'll flip it over to Dr. Amon and let him comment. Right. Well, many states these days have uh, have laws or regulations that require schools to write up a service plan for gifted individuals to identify exactly how that uh, school is going to meet that child's needs. And, of course, we know uh, because of IDEA that uh, uh, children who have an individual education plan based on a disability should have uh, specific ways that that school is going to meet those needs. What we find is, is the challenge is getting those two documents to work together. Uh, to address both ends, the strengths and the weaknesses. And those are uh, some of the greatest challenges that, that schools have. How do we meet the needs uh, on this end of the spectrum as well as that end of the spectrum? Do we, you know, how do we full-grade accelerate but also provide the, uh, the tutoring that's necessary to survive? How do we full-grade accelerate but also provide the structure that assists the ADHD child with the organization that they need? Um, because we hear, well, if, they, if they're not capable of, of organizing the material at that level, then they shouldn't be in that particular class. Uh, well, no, they're, they're intellectually able to handle the material. Uh, they just have a deficit in executive functioning, organization, and, and attention and focus. They don't, you know, it's not an issue with, they don't, uh, it's not an issue with learning uh, in that sense. So uh, getting those uh, those to work together. Of course, there are, you know, there are some schools who focus um, on children with learning disabilities. There are some schools who focus on gifted children, uh, but there are 
uh, not a lot of schools that, that focus on addressing the needs of both ends of the spectrum and, uh, uh, and challenging that. So I work with parents uh, to try. One of my goals uh, in working with families is to, is to make as, as, as little change in, in the day-to-day life as we can. So if they're in a particular school and the parents are generally satisfied with that school but need some assistance in advocating for the exact needs of that child, you know, we'll work to keep that child in that uh, school environment and work with that school to get them to meet those needs rather than looking for, you know, a different school environment, unless that's absolutely what's necessary, obviously. Um, you know, in that sense, I kind of look for the least restrictive environment, uh, so to speak. So we look to, to make as little change as possible, mm-hmm. uh, but making the significant changes within that environment before we look to uh, shift to a, a specific school. And, and unfortunately, there aren't many out there. But that implies well, that the uh, administration is willing to be flexible in terms mm-hmm. of of changing things rather than the lockstep curriculum that so often exists in most schools. Correct. And Correct. also the lockstep scheduling that so often exists in schools. Exactly. Because, exactly. Dr. Webb, what you were speaking of would be a scheduling nightmare for if you had, um, you know, I mean, ha- asking different teachers to take, I mean, it would be so, so challenging, but at the same time, to ensure the best education for each individual that's right. child, truly, that's what we need. Right, and, and if you really look at frequently. If you I'm really sorry. look at response to intervention, the, they, they talk about tiers, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three. Yeah. When you get up to the upper tiers, you're talking about that kind of adaptation and flexibility that is required, but yet is so difficult to implement in today's rather rigid educational system. I think there are other programs uh, that uh, there are some like Montessori programs tend to be much more flexible. I'm not necessarily advocating those for 2E kids, except that I do know their flexibility exists, and I admire that flexibility is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, and let me just comment on on the scheduling argument because that is one that that we hear quite frequently. Well, we can't we hear from schools we can't do that because of the scheduling. Um, but I live I live in Kentucky, and there are there are several things that are very very important in this state, and and one of them is basketball. And and by golly, if we've got an eight year old who's in the middle school who's good enough to play on that high school's varsity basketball team. We find a way to get that child from the middle school to the high school for basketball practice, even if it disrupts the scheduling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find a way to make that happen, uh, even though the middle school gets out 40 minutes after the high school starts its basketball practice. Somehow, the schools that's important enough that we figure out a way to make that happen. And if we can do that, surely we can work on some of these scheduling issues with gifted. We can't possibly, we hear, get this gifted kid over to the high school to take Algebra 1 because he's only in sixth grade, and that would just disrupt the whole day. Um, and it's so we find ways to do it in other situations. That rigidity is one of the reasons we're seeing so many parents of gifted children homeschooling these days because there you can individualize for that particular child and can do the tutoring where it's needed, the remedial work, the advanced work where it's where it's appropriate. Very true. And also allow the child an element of choice in how they demonstrate their abilities. Yes. And that's that's another aspect of um just uh 
public education or the large educational systems that, that tend to be that tend to hold gifted children back because we we don't always allow them uh, full demonstration. It's always it's usually paper and pencil tests yes. or computerized now if you're taking the ACT. So. Um, and gosh, we could go on about that that need in the education system forever. But I think what you two have pointed out so nicely is the need to focus on the strengths and also support the weakness or the challenges, but not make them the whole focus of the day. Uh, and that's a tendency um, that I've noticed. Is is that? something that you've seen, Dr. Amen, is that the tendency is still to focus on the disability and the challenge more so than the gift? Absolutely. One's, just one student I'll mention briefly, uh, reading and math, tremendous skills, writing very much a challenge. His small school decided that he needed to develop his writing skills. Uh, so they decided that they were going to take a week and just focus. Uh, the school was small enough that they were flexible enough that they could do this. They were going to spend the whole week focusing on his writing skills and developing his writing skills. Um, by Monday afternoon, he had a headache. Uh, by Monday evening, he didn't want to go to school Tuesday. Tuesday morning, he had a stomachache. By Tuesday afternoon, he didn't want to go to school anymore because they spent a day and a half focusing on what he couldn't do well while ignoring what he could do well. Um, and, and our argument is that we need to give these kids, as you were talking about, alternative ways to express their knowledge. If, he can, if you ask him to tell you about uh, whatever the, the topic may be, he'll tell you a lot. Mm -hmm. If you ask him to write it, you may get three sentences because he has a learning disability in written language. Uh, but instead of working to get around those weaknesses, uh, uh, we, we, we sometimes uh, have that challenge of, of forcing them into doing something they don't like. Uh, frankly, uh, I'm fortunate that I really love my job, but if I didn't like my job uh, and, and they made me do the one aspect of it that I really, really dislike all day for a week, I probably wouldn't do my job much longer. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, as we come to the end, Diane? Yes. Um, the, I, gosh, they've been so helpful. You, you have just been wonderful and insightful here today, and I think in uh, emphasizing so many points that Rebecca and I have been advocating for, and we're just so thrilled to have you here as our guest today. You've given us just a, a wide, wide uh, breadth of, of knowledge and wisdom for our listeners, and we're so grateful for that. And we, as we wrap up here today, um, we would love to have you point out maybe some resources, whether it be how parents can get in touch with uh, saying the wonderful um, organization that, that you founded, Dr. Webb, that we mentioned, or um, you gave us a, a wonderful resource today, but any other books, information, um, and anything you'd like to tell our listeners of how to educate themselves and get some of these answers they need? I have a few that I'd like to recommend. The one particularly is saying www.sengifted.org, Supporting Emotional Needs of Gifted. Uh, second one is uh, Great Potential Press, which is a publishing company that I'm affiliated with. A third is there are there's a neurologist and an internist, a husband and wife team, Dr. Fernet and Brock Eide, E-I-D-E. They have some wonderful books out there. They have one called The Mislabeled Child, another one called The Dyslexic Advantage. 
Both of them are very practical books about what you can do at home and at school with twice exceptional children. Uh, and then, um, Dr. Amon, would you like to add on some other resources? Of course, we'd like to mention the misdiagnosis and dual diagnoses of gifted children and adults, which sure. uh, will help parents sort things out, I think. Um, you know, of course, there's the National Association for Gifted Children, um, uh, who, uh, fo- whose focus is, you know, is on educating uh, gifted youth. Um, and, of course, the uh, 2E newsletter uh, is also a, a nice yes. resource with some uh, practical tips for uh, parents and teachers as well. So those are, you know, some of the resources that are out there. Um, of course, the... Uh, 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 probably the largest website uh, related to gift, all things gifted is Hoagie's Gifted website. Uh, it's Uh is another uh, tremendous resource for parents of uh, gifted and twice exceptional children. That's, that's Hoagie like the sandwich. <laughs> Hoagie's Gifted. And absolutely. You've mentioned um, some of our highlights and our favorites as well, and we will certainly make sure that all the links to everything that you've mentioned today are available on our Bright Not Broken Facebook page, and, and we'll put them on our website as well um, so that, that folks have a way to reach this information. We just can't thank you enough for being our guest today and, and um, coming on the Bright Not Broken radio show. We look forward to um, to future um, conversations, hopefully, with with you both, and we thank you so much for your time and being on today. Well, thank you, and thank you for what you're doing. So many people have the still the myth that a gifted mind will simply find its own way, and many of them will not. Thank you for doing this show. Yes, thank you very much thank for the opportunity to, to share our thoughts. Thank you. Good evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Step into the world of power loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 